0: So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
1: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year
0: Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show ridiculous historians thank you as always so much for tuning in this one that we're all pretty excited about uh, that's our super producer the one and only Mr. Max Williams Give him a hand uh, my name is Ben I gotta say I love this one it's it's terrible it's horrific. Uh, did some research for an unrelated project on this. And uh, I I don't know. I would say that you and I both are lovers of language, right? We're no pun left behind, guys.
5: Well, then, I actually prepared for this episode by not speaking for a week uh, Uh in the hopes that when my my mouth opened and I spoke on this episode, out would come the original language of Eden, God's intended language
0: for humanity. But it it turns out I just still speak kind of broken English. Well, what, what week was that? Because you and I were hanging out this weekend, man. Ben, don't, don't, come on, man. Let
5: me have my dream. <laughs> or at, very, at the very least, my, my thin subterfuge. Uh, it was a bit, Ben. I was a bit. Yes, and Come on. Um <laughs> No, it's true though. I, I didn't do that, but um, it's an interesting concept, isn't it? The notion that if you are not exposed to any language at all, that you may uh, come out with the very language that God intended. The implication there being that language is somehow passed down from on high and not some sort of like learned trait uh, involving you know paying attention to what other people are doing and that it's a living language that it evolves over time and uh, you know different languages exist because of different trial and error
0: attempts throughout history, right? Right, right. There was this idea, an ancient idea, that if humans would stop bothering children with their own pesky habits of language, that children would, as you say, speak the way that God intended them to. This story has has so many threads to pull, but let's start with an island that you may not have heard of unless you are from Scotland. It's a tiny place it's called inch Keith. Uh, the etymology, I think ultimately just means wooded isle, which is a little bit of a downer because I was hoping there was a guy named Keith somewhere in yeah. the island's past, and there was like an inch thing going on. But if you go to this aisle, this island is about three miles north of Edinburgh, you'll see that it has, you know, it has a pretty deep past. It was used to quarantine uh, people suffering from contagious sicknesses, especially <laughs> uh, syphilis, uh, which they called, get this, the Grand Gore. Grand Gore uh, back in the day. That sounds like a Muppet
5: villain or something like that. like sounds does, doesn't of it? Like, like the trash heap, you know, from Fraggle Rock,
0: or or like in Dark Crystal, you have to you have to merge with the Grand Gore. But the thing this island is most famous for nowadays is a very sad and, as we will find, not unique experiment that uh, is believed to have taken place in 1493 when then King of Scotland, James IV, said, I got to do an experiment with as few people as possible. And he set up something today, a language experiment, that remains a fascinating rabbit hole and what we'd like to do is explore a little bit about james who was a smart guy for the record going into this it's important to know before you hear all the crazy stuff we're going to say about him james was a smart guy for his time and uh maybe not the most ethical would you agree with that yeah he was i mean you know (laughs) uh,
5: gotta give the guy a little slack it was uh, a different time While he didn't necessarily hurt anybody, Uh, what he did would now be considered incredibly unethical. And what he did was take two newborn infant babies uh, and sequester them on the island of Inchkeith and have them raised by mute nursemaids, who would, of course, give them all the things they needed to be nourished physically, though not spiritually or like intellectually or emotionally, maybe emotionally. They probably gave them hugs, but they Did not give them bedtime stories or, you know, sing them songs or anything because Mm -hmm. they could not speak. The idea being that uh, if this happened, supposedly they would naturally, like you said, Ben, in the the same way the babies can swim out of the womb, come out with uh, this language he referred to oftentimes as the language of Eden you know, the first language of man, and by man you mean like, you know, humankind. But let's go a little bit more into the history of this island. It is around three miles north of Edinburgh in the middle of Scotland's Firth of Forth area, which is a real tongue twister, and it has had a bit of a checkered past. In the 12th century, it was used as a uh, stopping point for boats and ferries going from Edinburgh to Fife, and then a couple centuries later it had a strategic position that uh, allowed it to be very useful in the Scottish Wars of Independence. It was constantly being, you know, um, besieged by various invading English forces uh, during the Anglo-Scottish Wars. Then in the 15th century, like you said, Ben, it was kind of like a plague quarantine island like that one they were trying to send Hannibal Lecter to where you'd get the view of a tree you know uh, maybe get to walk on the beach all that stuff but then that was all you know a subterfuge as we know uh, if you've seen the film but let's go to James the 4th now Ben what say you
0: yeah yeah let's go so a bit of background about our boy James is born in 1473 on 17th of March so if you just do some quick math you'll realize that he was pretty young when he did this experiment, okay? And he was king of Scotland from 1488 until his death, September 9th, 1513. He was just like 15 when some rival nobles who were opposed to his father started using him as a figurehead in a 1488 rebellion his father was killed under mysterious circumstances. And as kind of a, a punishment or a, a penance for somehow playing a role in patricide, James IV would wear a heavy iron chain around his waist for the rest of his life. And a lot of this is coming from a great little website we'd like to recommend called undiscoveredscotland.co.uk. So he, he got into the royalty game pretty early he's just 15 when he gets uh coronated and one thing that's fascinating about him i always found was that he was actually good at his job you know we're not saying he's a perfect person
5: right he took to it quickly and um, was considered to be the most effective well the first uh, effective monarch out of the uh Stuart line
0: yeah yep and he expanded the navy he was known for keeping a cool head in military affairs and being a a solid leader. But, as we alluded to earlier, James was also super into the arts and sciences. Uh, He was a monarch, but that wasn't all he was. Uh, In fact, he is probably out of every other Scottish king He is the one who's most often brought up as being a what you would call a renaissance man today. He likes history, poetry, literature, medicine, science. He he wants to learn about the world.
5: Yep. He licensed the very first printing press in Scotland. Um, He was a notable patron of the arts. Um, He, you know, helped support numerous, you know, creators bards, for example, songwriters. He even studied, you know, dentistry and surgery. I don't know that he, hopefully he didn't perform any uh, amateur dental or, or surgical procedures, but you never know with the king. He certainly wasn't beyond the realm mm-hmm. of possibility, but he also was super into alchemy, which I think we are both fascinated by as well, Ben, largely from stuff we've talked about on our other podcast, Stuff They Don't Want You to Know. I think we have a whole episode on alchemy that mm-hmm. folks should check out, in which we almost certainly talk about John Damien. Who is King James's most trusted and uh, you know supposedly adept alchemist? And anyone but that could doesn't not know, fly. Could, well, we'll get to that for sure. Uh, <laughs> not only could he not fly, he pulled kind of a Marty McFly kind of situation um, that we'll get to in just a second. But John Damien was, you know, what 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 James would have considered an adept alchemist. What we know today is that was not really a thing. <laughs> it was largely uh, being very good bullshit being able to kind of convince people that you had these abilities. It was sort of in- interesting culturally because it straddled that line between magic
0: and science, right, Ben? Yeah, alchemy gave the human species a lot of inv- advancements. It's a precursor to what we call chemistry today. And they were conducting a lot of experiments that may have seemed unorthodox at the time and may seem ill-informed. But in many ways, uh, the alchemists of this era were trailblazers John Damien <laughs> is unfortunately perhaps most remembered today for an experiment he did with flight and this is this is also mentioned in an uh, article by Paul Anthony Jones The King of Scotland's Peculiar Language Experiment over our, with our friends at Mental Floss here's what here's what Johnny D did which is what I'm going to call him he, he he thought you know well Things with feathers, birds, many of them can fly, he thought. So why don't I get some feathers together and will we'll, I'll make some wings that are the size of a man for, out of chicken feathers, and then I'm going to jump from Sterling Castle, where as he said, he's uh, King James is located, and he says, you know, I get enough altitude, your highness, I'll be able to fly straight to France. This was maybe true for a couple of seconds. He did reach great speeds, but they were all, you know, he was he reached great speed going downward, and he broke his leg. He, he survived, though. Unfortunately, falling and flying are not the same thing, even if they both take place
5: in the air. Um, and I mentioned Marty McFly earlier, and I'm referring to the fact that in every iteration of Back to the Future, Biff Marty's nemesis ends up falling into a pile of manure, showing that history repeats itself no matter what you do, or at the very least, it often rhymes, right, Ben? Um, But that's exactly what happens to old Johnny D. He tumbles out of the sky into a massive dung heap. Nothing worse than that, having to walk away from a failed experiment covered in excrement. Uh, But it admittedly did cushion his fall and keep him from dying. Instead, he did just suffer a broken leg and uh, likely a, a heavily bruised ego. And then he yeah. ended up blaming the the types
0: of feathers on it, right? What was that? Yeah, yeah. he said He said, "Look, Your Highness, my ideas are solid. The hidden feathers I used must have been so attracted to that pile of sh- below that it made me crash." And what we're saying with this anecdote is that the king is an open-minded guy for his time. He wants, to, he wants to pursue stuff. He believes the world is both understandable and worth understanding, which is something I, in principle, agree with. Uh, but that's chief amongst his intellectual interests, the stuff that he really dug, was his love of language. <laughs> ¶¶ tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card with 24 7 us-based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yes You heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool
5: in hourly hiring.
0: He spoke multiple languages. This guy spoke English, Latin, French, Italian, Spanish. He threw some Flemish in there, and people were amazed that he wasn't, he wasn't putting up a front about this. He really did speak these languages. And as a linguist, he was constantly asking himself, how do people know to speak? And how come people are the only animals, he wondered, uh, that i know of that can use language nowadays we know that's not entirely true by the way uh, whales communicate uh, with through song right and it has a lot in common with languages and birds seem to also be able to communicate certain concepts especially corvids shout out um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but he like i i think we both read that Sometimes this guy, who again is the king of Scotland, he's got stuff to do. This guy would sit around and just watch people talk. He would just watch their mouths move. It's a little weird, huh? Yeah. It's cool.
5: Again, I applaud the guy for his thirst for knowledge, but he also seemed like a bit of a sociopath i I don't know most kings it's easy for them to fall into that trap given that you're just constantly surrounded by yes men not to say the sociopaths are made but certainly if you have those tendencies and people are constantly indulging you and doing whatever bizarro things you want you certainly might not be the best thing for you but what we're talking about today Is King James the Fourth's language experiments Um, because, like you said, he was fascinated with the way people communicate with each other, logistically, spiritually, all of that stuff. Uh, Just like how does it work and why are we driven to do it? Um, So, like you do in 1493, he decided to take two newborn babies to be sent to live on that isolated island of Inchkeith that we talked about. And not only were they raised by uh, mute women, they were deaf mute women. His goal was to see what natural language the children would come out with after a period of time. Um, There's not a whole lot of documentation of the experiment itself, so we're not quite sure exactly how long uh, they lived on this island. Um, But we do know the experiment most likely took place, uh, and we're going to get into it now. We know... To, that language deprivation experiments are often referred to as the forbidden experiment and that is because they are just inherently cruel. It's something that we've seen throughout history uh, when people maybe had less you know concern for like scientific standards and ethics. but we've seen the Greeks do this. Uh, Herodotus. I believe. Uh, he wrote that um, in the 17th century BCE, um, the Egyptian pharaoh uh, Samatik, uh sent two infants to live with a shepherd in an incredibly isolated part in his kingdom, and he ensured that they would never be spoken to. And Herodotus uh, claimed, according to his writings, that much of their speech was nonsense, but he believed they were babbling the words bekos, which is an ancient Phrygian word that means bread, Um, Mm -hmm. so the pharaoh believed that phrygia rather than egypt was in fact the oldest civilization because i mean that's the language they came out with naturally Mm -hmm. swing it was all it was total swing and a miss barely even a swing
0: yeah and as as you know folks uh this historian is famous for being infamously unreliable so take it with a grain of salt uh this is not the only example, though, we know that the Mughal Indian Emperor Akbar back in the 16th century also reputedly raised children in isolation. And this guy found that these children, when they were raised without the opportunity to learn language in their formative years, they tended to remain mute later. And this this plays a role in the idea that there is a window Right. A window of time in which certain things must be learned by juvenile humans.
5: It reminds me of of the case of Jeannie uh, in 1957, the the young uh, feral child who was living under horrible, abusive, neglectful situations um, where she was basically kept in a room. And she she was able to be taught to speak. But if you don't have a need to speak this shows that you're probably not going to. Um, More often than not, kids in these kind of situations uh, start to develop sign language rather than actually speaking because, again, we as children, we learn by example and uh, Jeannie didn't speak for a long time until she was then kind of shown, you know, some exercises and ways to, to pick it up, and she did. But you're right, Ben, once you get past a certain threshold, just like it is for adults to learn a foreign language, it does become increasingly more and more difficult and has nothing to do with some innate language ability. I mean, it really is just about how the brain is able to learn things.
0: Yeah, it's hardwire. Uh, this, is, this is something I, I want to touch on later, too, because these experiments are ancient but things like this do occur much more recently than people may like to assume uh, and we'll get to a case of Romania in, in a little later in the show maybe but obviously you can have noble intentions and it's a good question to ask they just didn't have the same kind of concept of ethics that people have today so obviously Even if James were a king now in a modern monarchy, he would still have an uphill battle ahead of him if he wanted to try to do this experiment. And even in his time, people believed that these experiments were bad for kids. The Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick II, had tried to raise, had tried to conduct a similar experiment, raising children this way. And people believed that the children he had raised, in silence, without communication, had all died. And some people believe that those unfortunate children on Inchkeith died as well. But to the point you're making, and this is a very good point we have to make, there aren't really any credible records. Like, there's not a trail of correspondence from multiple people saying, hey, what's up with those kids on that island? I just wanted to check in. Sorry, I've been busy being king, but don't think I forgot. People guessed about the outcome of the experiment, but a lot of that guessing was hearsay or secondhand, like Sir Walter Scott said, well, to me, the kids probably just imitated whatever they heard from the local animals around them, or maybe non-language vocalizations from their adult caretakers. Another guy, many decades later, named Robert Lindsay, said, he had heard the kids spoke perfect Hebrew. That's almost certainly made up. Right.
5: Right. And it's interesting, though, but what, what do you think the agenda is to make a claim like that? Um, you, one would think that they would claim that it was, you know, the, the, the king's English you know, that the children naturally spoke. I mean, I guess there was reverence for Hebrew culture because of, you know, Christianity and all of that. But I also know that there was division and that Jewish people were often othered, uh, even in this time, right?
0: Yeah, the, the Hebrew language is an interesting claim. And, you know, we have to also understand that in this time, a lot of scientific experiments suffered from Confirmation bias. Now, I can't remember the name of this guy, but back in the day in Europe, there was a a scientist, quote-unquote, a learned man, who did what he thought was exhaustive research on the most attractive face of a man. And he found, surprise, surprise, that the most attractive, scientifically proven, most attractive male face uh, did, in fact, look a lot like his. Big, big nose, weak, weak chin, you know. Uh, I think Balding or something like that. So what we're saying is people kind of dressed up their own opinions sometimes. And there may have been some kind of agenda with either Robert Lindsay or whomever was telling him that. But when we speculate over whether or not King James actually did this, we have to also note that it could have been folklore. It could have been just a tall tale a legend because we know he genuinely was a polyglot we know that he genuinely did love languages so maybe this along with pre-existing knowledge of other language deprivation experiments maybe these things combined to sound plausible enough right mm-hmm. like maybe it never happened but everybody acknowledged it's something this dude would have been into
5: yeah no i completely agree and um as we know uh, ultimately another king james was very responsible for guiding the trajectory of Christianity with his King James translation of the Bible. Um, and and we know that there are many translations of the Bible, but that was one that kind of picked up the most steam and it was because he had the most clout. So obviously that uh, love of language kind of ran uh, in that uh, in that family to a, to a degree. Um, and we know also that the, the history is kind of written by the victors and the folks with the most power. So I think that's very interesting uh, to think about.
3: Yeah, and actually, I want to kind of chime in here, right here, Noel. Yeah. That uh, King James you speak of is actually this James's great grandson.
0: Yep, no way, it's true. Yep, what known as King James the Sixth and King James the First, depending on uh, which which kingdom you're talking about.
5: But it's true. It just goes to show that language matters. And that fascination, obviously, was something that was important to a generation of of King Jameses. But, you know, so many people kind of question uh, the validity of the King James Bible because a lot of it was built around a pretty particular perspective of a monarch, you know? <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah. And to go back to our guy, James IV, This is where we have to ask ourselves a little bit more about what the written record would say. We mentioned that earlier historian, Robert Lindsay, he's working in the 16th century. He wrote a book called History and Chronicles of Scotland. Uh, This was almost 100 years after the fact, by the way, and he does specifically mention this alleged experiment. He says, the king also caused to take one deaf woman and put her in Inchkeith and give her two bairns, B-A-I-R-N-S, just kids, with her and furnish her in all necessary things pertaining to their nourishment, desiring hereby to know what languages they had when they came to the age of perfect speech. Some say they could speak Hebrew, but for my part, I know not but from other people's reports. So at least he was like, all right, some someone told me it was Hebrew. It seems like they probably wouldn't have done that. Maybe if someone was there teaching them Hebrew, but that would be speaking to them. That would render the experience or the experiment rather pointless. So what happened to James? We know this experiment was just one of the many things he did, but what did he do after this? Well, um, he He died. <laughs>
5: <laughs> And some weird stuff happened to his body.
1: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender-inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through 6x visit tomboyx.com
0: tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card with 24 7 us-based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yes You heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring.
5: He was considered. Ultimately, history kind of deemed him to be a pretty successful ruler. His reign was was relatively peaceful, but it was kind of uh, upended by some wars with England, uh, though they didn't they weren't the aggressors. Um, so there was a truce with England that was broken in 1495, um, and James had to prepare an invasion to support the Perkin Warbeck, who was uh, what you'd call a pretender to the English throne, sort of an interloper. Um, The war uh, was largely fought in a few border areas, and a seven-year peace was negotiated uh, in December of 1947, but there were still little skirmishes along these borders from time to time. And relations between England and Scotland were... Did continue to kind of improve uh, and stabilize up until fifteen o three, and that's when James married Margaret Tudor, who was the oldest daughter of King Henry the Seventh of England. And then, of course, uh, a century later, James's great grandson, the uh, Stuart monarch James the Sixth of Scotland, uh, took the English throne. Um, that's a boy guy. It's the Bible guy. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah, the Bible
0: guy. That's mm-hmm. what he called himself. He's like, I'm Bible guy.
5: That's I'm me. The
3: Bible guy. <laughs>
0: so, <laughs> right. Who can take the scriptures? Anyway, so, so this uh, this leads to an interesting situation. So, because James the fourth is well respected in this region. He is able to get an, a pretty equal seat at the table of continental Europe. Uh, then he goes into conflict with King Henry VIII, famous for that oldie song, I'm King Henry VIII. I'm Henry VIII, I am. Uh, yeah, by anyway. Hermes, Herman's Hermits, I believe. There it is. Thank you. And so, so he tries to team up with France against Henry VIII. And when Henry VIII invades France in 1513, James has all his advisors saying, all right, man, keep a cool head, keep a cool head, bro. But instead he says, no, forget it. I'm going into England. So he trashes four castles all in the month of August, 1513. But then his army gets waxed. The opposing forces mop the floor with them. It's something called the Battle of Flodden, or Flodden, F-L-O-D-D-E-N, on September 9th, 1513, and this is when James IV passes away. He and most of his nobles die in this conflict. His corpse is not looking what you would call open casket ready, He's been disfigured by arrows. He eventually gets identified as people are going through bodies after the battle. And then he his remains are embalmed. He's put in a lead coffin, and he's taken from a place called Berwick back to London. And this package is sent to the wife of Henry VIII. She takes the poor dead James's surcoat which is still like, it's bloody and it's ripped up because he did not have a peaceful end. And she sends it back to her husband. Catherine sends it to her husband, King Henry VIII. And she says something pretty metal, to be honest with you. She says, use this as a war banner. You know, let the enemy forces see this dead guy's bloody coat. That's psychological warfare right there.
3: Um, Yeah. I mean, you got to think like he was like basically family with them too. Because yeah. Henry VIII was his brother-in-law, right? Well,
0: monarchies, monarchies yeah. are super into being interrelated. Uh, but that's not his body, right? Henry eventually gets back from France, and people think, well, we've got this, you know, habeas corpus. We've got this guy's body. What should we do with it? For many of us hanging out today, and Noel Max, I'm sure you can agree, uh, the idea would be like, hey, bury the guy. Is dead. But they, they weren't happy with that, were they?
5: Yeah, so um, he was, in fact, excommunicated from the church um, as a punishment for breaking that truce of perpetual peace, which is a great name for a truce, if you ask me. Uh, and that was signed between Scotland and England in 1502. And because of that, because of that excommunication, the idea of a proper Christian burial uh, in consecrated church grounds just wasn't on the table. No. Uh, so the body of James was just left uh, in a woodshed uh, of the Sheen Monastery to just kind of, you know, molder uh, there, uh, you know, in, in, in like literally like a like a tool shed. Even after the Pope granted permission for the burial, they were like, no, sorry, this precedes the Pope. This is the word of God. So eventually this, you know, rotted corpse was just completely forgotten about. And somehow the head of, fell off I mean that'll happen you know if you leave something just to rot uh, long enough that's gonna happen and the story goes though there isn't a ton of of uh, you know documentation for this that some workers from the area played uh, soccer with it kicked it around um, after which time uh, Elizabeth the First's master glazier found it and took it home as a souvenir
0: yeah and this wasn't Quite the end. The head was eventually taken to Great St. Michael's Church in London. It was dumped into a charnel pit. Uh, Eventually, the monastery where the king's headless body was housed was demolished. We don't know whether it was ever actually buried there. That church, St. Michael's, also got torn down. And if you go there now, I believe it is the site of a pub called, get this, the Red Herring. So things did not end well. But one thing we do know from this story, whether or not it is true or whether it's a tall tale, we know that communication with children, with babies, with infants is tremendously important. We see other examples of this that were really heartbreaking, such as the problems with Romanian orphanages that happened very, very recently. And what what they found is that these children were so neglected in these state orphanages. They would just lay in cribs all day. Many weren't clothed or fed or diapered on any set schedule. Um, they would die from very minor diseases in some cases, and then would have they'd be exposed to very serious infections like HIV. Wow. So this thing, it's interesting, and this this is I have a hard time articulating how disturbing this is these children in some cases in many cases literally stopped vocalizing because no one would answer their cries they just gave up
5: wow that's that's heartbreaking um but we will likely never know what happened to these children that's the fascinating part if you ask me uh is how did they progress in their lives you know like right. were they able to learn how to speak once they were returned from the island were they returned from the island did they live out their days on this island with nothing but these these nurses to take care of them and since they are presumably much older what happened when they passed the island today is actually owned by a uh like a scottish multimillionaire a guy named tom farmer who's the founder of a company called quick fit and you have to get his permission to check out uh, the island of Inchkeith to this
0: day. Mm-hmm. I hear there's a nice lighthouse, but yeah, you, you got to check with Tom first. And yeah, this is, this is so fascinating because history is chock full of experiments that seem bizarre or unethical or just even a little bit absurd, you might say, like gluing, you know, chicken feathers to yourself and jumping mm-hmm. off a building. Uh, but e- we have to remember that each one of these experiments, even if they do seem, dare I say it, ridiculous, here in 2021, they are all a part of a great endeavor, which is to understand the world a little bit better than we did yesterday. And for that, you can say, you know, this is a noble thing, but if you are listening you're considering language experiments on children, don't do this. I feel like that—that's not a hot take, right? We can tell no, people not so. to do. Okay. I think we're—I think yeah. we're good. I think—I think we're all on the same page there.
5: But Ben, what are the kind of modern equivalents of this kind of language experimentation that would be considered ethical? Uh, is it more modeling, kind of AI-based stuff? Or I'm just fascinated. You know, obviously, doing experiments on children, even with permission, is uh, is pretty frowned upon. But um, ha- have there? I mean, I think. Honestly, the whole goal of this experiment has probably been so disproven and kind of made a bit of a mockery just by, you know, what we know now today that people don't just come out with some sort of natural, you know, language of God. It is all about nature and nurture. So maybe these kind of experiments are irrelevant largely today.
0: Yeah, I mean, it would be. Honestly, things would probably be a lot easier if the human species ever had a single language and people have in the past tried to manufacture or, you know, uh, purposely create a one-world language such as, oh my gosh, I know people, it's such as Esperanto. You know, William Shatner did a film all in Esperanto, and my friends who speak Esperanto I actually know a few. Uh, assure me that it is hilarious because his accent is terrible. Mr. Shatner, if you're listening, that is not a ding on you, sir. But you're right, Noel. I'd love to hear from people who work in the fields of, you know, uh, studying language acquisition in children. And love to hear what the, what the future of that research is. And I, I wonder how it can be modeled. Uh, but that's that's a story for the future. And our show is about history. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this. Uh, we can't wait to hear from you. As always, uh, please check us out oh on the internet. Oh my uh, God. Now, come on, man. So close. We're going so well. All right, Max, it get was, ready. It was bound to happen sooner or later. <laughs>
2: what, what's happening?
4: <that> <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs>
2: Seriously? Chris. Chris. Audible it's cringe.
4: time, gentlemen. Jonathan Son of Strickland, a... a.k.a. the Quister.
5: <laughs> Wait, Max, have you, not, have you not experienced this before? Is this new for you?
3: I, I have edited it before, but I have never firsthand experienced it. But Jonathan, how are you, my friend?
4: There are no friends here, Max. Only oh boy. adversaries. I, the Quister, have traveled... Backward in time to quiz you before the thing you'll talk about has been talked about. So my first question to you is Hey man, come what, on.
5: Don't what, don't give what,
0: away the, what,
4: the magic. What, what have what have you had talked about already that hasn't happened yet?
0: Oh, uh, we've talked about language deprivation experiments.
4: (laughs) A very famous one. (laughs) Because, you see, Master Boatlin, it's quite, quite fortuitous because my scenarios... Have nothing whatsoever to do with that. <laughs> uh, but I
5: mean, you know, your very presence uh, often deprives those around you of language. That's true. Just because That's they're true. so busy cringing.
4: There's a lot of, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, of, of of speechless mouths. When I yes. do come up, yes. Welcome exactly. to the the cringiest segment of any podcast in existence, the Quizter segment, where I will present to our <clears throat> beloved. Co-hosts, three scenarios. Oh, nice. It is their duty to determine which. How, what are they again? Scenarios.
0: Th- th- three what? Three
5: scenarios.
4: Sc- it's just okay, you've
0: ruined it. the way I say that word now. Yeah, it's like just, in my day-to-day life.
4: I mean It's <laughs> just mm-hmm. part of part of my gig, man. I mean, I just there's a whole like Learned there's matter. a whole like job description, and right up there was ruined scenarios for Ben Boland. So
0: check that oh, out. B- oh. Right so great uh, glad to help you so uh, for for folks who haven't for a fellow ridiculous historians who haven't had the experience the honor. of hearing this segment before mm. uh, do you you want to you want to give us a, a quick and dirty breakdown I, also for was, Max as well
4: I was working on it but I kept getting interrupted right so I'll give you three scenarios two of which are true and one that I made up sees Then the two of you must determine which of the three scenarios is the fake. And you will have a few minutes to determine. You get to discuss amongst yourselves. And if you wish to ask me a question, you must first preface that question by following an arbitrary rule that I set typically 30 seconds after I stop talking. No, I've got it. I've got it. In this case, and you'll understand why, when I ask... When you want to ask a question of me Now I'm getting mixed up It's been a long time How are you guys doing? No, never mind When I am ready to have you ask a question You say Whale of a tail And then you ask a question
1: Whale of a tail
4: And then you can ask a question of me Otherwise, just talk amongst yourselves Are you prepared for your three scenarios? Get on with it, Quister Yep,
0: I've got the, the grandfather
4: clock We spent way too much money on in yeah. my apartment, so we're good to it's go. It's been, let me tell you, moving that, he didn't even buy us pizza. Moving that up to your, oh, boy, what a day that was. All right, here are your three scenarios. Scenario one. In 1850, the English Channel Submarine Telegraph Company attempted to create the first telegraph wire connection between Dover, England, and Calais, France, After laying the cable under the sea, and before either England or France could establish a good connection, the line went dead. The newspapers placed blame upon a nameless French fisherman who thought he had discovered a weird type of seaweed, perhaps one with gold in the middle, and had cut the line through. Scenario number two. In 1855, Norway laid a subsea cable to the isolated archipelago of Svalbard, where whalers had established communities. The experiment came to an abrupt end when Tinius Olsen, the engineer, stationed at Svalbard, begged to be retrieved. He claimed that the whalers had threatened him and had been trying to destroy the cable with their ship anchors. It would take another 50 years before Norway established a permanent cable connection with Svalbard. Scenario 3. In 1858, the US ship Niagara and the British ship Agamemnon met in the middle of the Atlantic, spliced two very long cables together, and then sailed in opposite directions, spooling out cable along the way. The Niagara went to Newfoundland, Agamemnon went to Ireland. The cable established the first transatlantic communication wire between the UK and North America, but it only worked for about two months before the chief electrician, Wild Man Whitehouse, fried the cable with too much voltage. Begin.
0: Okay, oh, I am running boy. to the clock. One, one second, guys. Go! Uh, these are all pretty good i uh, pretty good. Uh, I've heard of Svalbard. That
5: seems like a, re- I, or maybe it's. I've seen it like a, it's like a piece of IKEA furniture. Um, wouldn't that be devious? Especially after saying it with such intention every time. He said, mm-hmm. "What's it called again, Jonathan?" Svalbard. It almost oh. sounds like the. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. I wasn't quite, that was. I guess I thank you for answering that without me doing yeah. The required. Yeah. Yeah. That,
4: that was just that was just catering to my ego. <laughs> that
0: was just
5: That's for old right. times. quail
4: right. ah, yeah. of a jail, Yes, Master Bolin.
0: Could you give us just the dates of those three? The first one was 18. 1850
4: for the English Channel between Dover and Calais. 1855 between the mainland of Norway and Svalbard. And 1858 for Ireland to Newfoundland.
0: Okay. Mm. So this, this to me, Noel, this means that they all occurred or two of them at least occurred in a very close span of time. Right. I mean,
5: this is sort of like a this represents these sort of clashes of like old and new kind of where it's like I think most of these involve. Well, that's not true. The second one in particular involves like a fisherman not realizing what underwater cable was and Mm -hmm. mistaking it for some that seems like a stretch i feel like you know if 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 folks are out in the world they're seeing this infrastructure being laid you know if they're professional Mm -hmm. seafaring folk then they're going to be aware of this stuff unless they're like you know from another time like in sino man or
4: something just interrupt that that is that is part of the that is part of the first scenario not the second one just so that just so that you know which ones you're picking
0: Okay, uh, it, So the first it. one also had a bit of good old-fashioned greed, right? Seaweed with gold. With gold. They were going for the gold. That's, right, that's, right, that's right. That's right. That's right. Okay. Yeah.
5: So that's the one I'm going to maybe cancel out. Um, I don't know, man. I'm going to go
0: with Svalbard. You're going to go with Svalbard? Then we're weird a little. <laughs> you ready to pass? A little, because for some reason, I, I just wanted to pick the third one, not because of the content, but because of the way – that the Quizster is saying Svalbard to bring attention to it. Um What do you think? You want to consult Max? We got, We can game show this. We can call sure. a friend. Hey, sure. Max. Max, what are you saying?
3: Say? Uh, you guys want me in? I am with Noel. Initially hearing them, I was like, it's the number two. That's the one I'm okay. going to go with.
0: All right, then let's lock it in. Three, two, one. Number two.
4: Max, Max, Max! What the hell did I do to you? All right. Listen, I had a good thing going. You come in, you ruin everything. <laughs> number two was the made-up seas, right? So, yeah. So, yeah. Number, so number one with the French fishermen who who cut through the wire, thinking that it was a strange form of seaweed. That's what the newspapers reported. It was not necessarily what actually happened. What probably happened was that the cable, which had no armor sheathing on it, rubbed against the rocks because of the action of waves and broke apart on its own. But the newspapers reported that it was potentially a French fisherman who just plain did not know better and cut through it. And of course, the Agamemnon and the Niagara did in fact meet in the middle of the ocean. This was the second attempt. The first time they tried to go from Ireland all the way to Newfoundland with one ship picking up where the end of the cable left off for ship number one. But that did not work. It, it broke apart, and so they ended up trying it again, and they started in the middle of the Atlantic and went opposite directions. That worked for about two months. It also took okay. 67 minutes for Queen Victoria's message to be sent across the transatlantic cable to arrive for President James Buchanan and it wasn't even what that good she of say? a message what did she
0: say was it like you up she said
4: she said dear jimmy brit's rule americans drool love vicky
0: uh. Classic. Jimmy and Vicky,
5: Taylor's oldest time. Uh, I didn't realize that it took so long for those messages to be transmitted. That's interesting. Yeah. Mm.
4: Well, if you would like to learn more about why, you can listen to tech stuff because I totally just recorded episodes about it.
0: <laughs> so smooth, yeah. Uh, that, that is true, Jonathan. In addition to being our nemesis, again, longtime listeners, you know this well. Uh, you do so many things. Uh, you've got the best tech podcast out there on the internet, as verified and confirmed by us here at Ridiculous History. It comes out five days a week, uh, and it is also one of the older shows on our network. It's one of the first podcasts we ever started doing. If you want to learn anything about technology, that is your go-to. But that's not all you do, is it, Quister?
4: No, no, no. I also host a, a co host a show called Large Nerdron Collider that publishes every Thursday. Where I and believe it or not, my friend, yes, I do have one named Ariel, uh, she and I talk about the latest geek news of the week. And then we mash up two geek properties that never should meet one another and say, well, What would happen if they had a baby?
0: Is she also a, a soulless uh, supervillain type figure? She, she's, she's real. She goes to another podcast.
4: Yeah, she's yes, exactly. She's my she's my podcast <laughs> girlfriend from Canada. And uh, then Got finally, it. finally, I host a show called The Restless Ones, which is all mm-hmm. about talking with very important executives about technology and leadership. And uh, that one is a dude, all right. Fine, fine, fine.
5: <laughs> <laughs> i'm giving you a hard time no listen oh, sometimes oh God, sometimes i fall asleep on when i especially
4: men. if you if you ask me to qa an episode forget it that's that's z time oh Nobody
0: yes what, a, a bit of inside baseball this is funny uh so we were talking before we got on air and i had said jonathan you know it's uh it's good to see you how are you uh we name it's been too long we name drop you at the end of every episode and then there was a a temperature on our recording. You could feel it palpably lower in the room. Mm -hmm. And he Mm -hmm. said, Oh, I've heard.
4: (laughs) 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 It it got back to me. You don't
5: listen to our show. It's It's all in good fun. It's all in good fun. We love you, Jonathan and your, your, your alter ego, the Quister. Always glad when you darken our doorstep and lower our zoom room podcast temperature.
4: (laughs) I hope that the two of you have a wonderful conversation about the thing that everyone else has already heard
5: yes thank, you. thank you, you we we do too oh god you're really messing my head up on this one be gone quister oh <laughs>
4: quister out
0: <laughs> and there he goes there he goes you know um hate to see him leave but love to watch him walk away yeah i like
5: i prefer it when he just kind of dematerializes into a puff of smoke that's always nice.
0: Yeah, it's just the smoke budget is, well, you know, that's a lot of inside baseball, folks, but we're we're hard at work. Uh, Max, you have survived your first encounter with Jonathan Strickland, a.k.a. the Quister in You'll the You'll never wild. be the same, though. You'll never be the same. No, though. it oh, stays no. with you. It gets, it gets into your soul. Uh, so I think at this point, maybe the three of us uh, call it a day, uh, get some rest and recuperation from that. Well, it's not that bad. We won, you know.
3: We did you win. win. Ah, I take somewhere. all credit for that too, even you though no well, thought it.
5: no, now, now, no, not all credit. I, I, I was, I was, I was barking up the right tree. You just joined me in that tree and helped sway Ben. And for okay, that, okay, okay, no, how about this? Grateful. I
3: get fifty. You get fifty. Ben gets zero. Okay,
5: that sounds fair. What do you say, Ben?
0: Yeah, I'm fine <laughs> with that. I, uh, okay. I have a good friend whose street name is Zero. Well, uh, then then
5: first and foremost, we must thank our super producer, Max Williams, for rescuing us from the tyranny of the Quister, who we will also thank with, you know, less sincerity. Um, But also thanks to you, Ben.
0: Hey, thanks to you, no. For coming over to the, the 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 light side, you know, I believe in the uh, benefits of democracy. So you know, historically, I'm trying to pull everybody in on on so many things. So the power of voting matters, folks. That's that's our takeaway there. Yeah, uh, and thanks, of course, to Alex Williams. Thanks to Christopher Haciotis. Thanks to Eve's Jeffcoat. Thanks to Jonathan Strickland, a.k.a. The Quister, who has just done so much for the tourism industry of Svalbard, which is a very interesting place, by the way. It's uh, one of the few places. It's one of the easiest places to migrate to in all of Europe because <clears throat> the weather is a little rough. Uh, thanks also to let's see who else. Oh, thanks to Gabe. Yeah. Thanks to Gabe Luzier for hipping us to this
5: incredibly fascinating topic that we have definitely already recorded. Yeah, Yeah, we'll do OK. We'll do OK. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
1: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer-founded, queer-run, and creating size and gender-inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies, so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop.